good? First of all, um, that's not exactly how I recall it happening. Okay. It was more like I was on the ground. He had his foot on my neck and said, you come. That's what I remember. That's my story. And I am definitely sticking to it. All right. Um, let's just pause to pray. Our Father, as we come before you today, we come before the holy writ of the word of God. And we would like to ask that the author would attend our presence and speak so that we might hear and that we would obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I want to introduce this, um, this discussion today on the lessons from David. But I want to do it by um, uh, just a small story and then we'll get into our text we have lots of ground to cover, so if you're planning on ending on time, I want you to know I never end on time. I might end early, but it's never on time. Uh, number one, um, uh, when I was in, in, in 18 years old, the only thing I wanted to do in life was to go to Emmaus Bible College. That was it. And I went to my parents and I said, well, I'd like to go to Emmaus Bible College. And they were very sweet and they went, well... Why don't you get like a skill set and then go? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, you, you know, you, you just need to have a skill set. Okay, okay. So I chose medicine. That was a dumb decision because it's like a lifelong commitment, right? And so, so I went to medical school. And then after you do that, you do your residency, which is sort of like the old indentured slave thing of the Civil War, you know, and I was a slave. And... And then you finish that, and um, I still wanted to go to Bible schools in my uh, mid to late 20s, and I said, Lord, how can I go to Bible school? We're like four children deep. This isn't going to work. And, and so uh, I was kind of upset with the Lord. I don't know if you ever get upset with the Lord, but, you know, I have a PhD in being upset with the Lord. So, so anyway, I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was so, ups so frustrated and I just said, okay, 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 I'll just study the Bible on my own. You'll just have to teach me. You know, I'm talking to the greatest teacher ever in, the, in humanity. And I felt like, I didn't hear any voices, but I felt like, okay, yeah, I think I can handle that, you know. And so I started studying my Bible. Now, what was interesting to me was that as I was studying, all those skills I learned in research, you know, research methodology and tenacity and how to understand data and correlate and all those things you learn in that field of science were kind of handy when you studied the Bible. You know, observation, correlation, interpretation, application, that's basically a good journal in the New England Medical Journal, you know, or a good article in the New England Medical Journal. And, and I, I felt like I had my own karate kid story, Daniel-san, show me wax on, wax off. And all of a sudden, I knew like karate in a spiritual sense. Now, if you haven't seen that movie, you probably need to see that for this story to make sense. Now, David had a similar experience. You're wondering if I was going to weave it around to David. And the answer is yes. Because what you find in 2 Samuel chapters 3 through 5 is exactly what he was tutored, what he was taught in 1 Samuel chapters 20, uh, 23, 24, and 20, or sorry, 24, 25, and 26. In other words, what he learned back while he was a fugitive, while he was on the run, now that he's king, it actually becomes really, 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 really important. And that's exactly the story of most of our Christian journeys. 
we go through things and we don't really understand what is this doesn't make sense and we kind of have you know whining and complaining pity parties and then all of a sudden we move forward and you go ah and I wish we had could gone ah back when we were learning whatever we we're learning you know it would have been nicer and less you know ugly so when we get to today's lesson you find that David is now applying several things now, so what we're going to do is we're going to, let's see if I can do this. My son, son is so tech savvy, I don't always know what I'm doing. Okay, all right. We're going to talk about two things. And the first thing today, it didn't advance. There it is. This is good. I don't know if you know that, but that TV back there is just slightly off. So, okay. Is it, do we know that? Okay. Because if I look at that thing, I'll have a seizure. Okay, all right. Okay, so the first point that we're going to talk about is David is admirable in his expansion. And this is chapters 3 and 4. Now, this is going to take some energy because it's long and it's detailed. And so I have the challenge of going through this quickly, which means that you will most likely need to read this passage before today or after the message. So it's kind of technical and detailed. So just be ready that we'll sort of scoot. Now, when we talk about it, we're going to talk about David, Abner, and Joab, and, and that's in 1 Samuel 3. We're going to talk about Isbosheth and his assassins in chapter 4, and then we'll have a section on what do we learn? What do we learn? All right, so let's get moving. So if you have your Bibles, I need you to turn to chapter uh, 3, and as you're turning there, let's create the context. The context was that there was a civil war. War had broken out. Now, here's the cool part. If you were with us in Israel, you would know where this started, and it's at Gibeon, and we went to Gibeon, okay? And we go in this back, back area of the country. We're, high, we're kind of in the mountains, and we're going to a place that's kind of trashed, and it's a city park that looks like it was a bad city park. And we hike this little trail, and we go to the well of Gibeon. And at the well of Gibeon, Joab had his men, and, and Abner, who was, by the way, the uncle of King Saul, he had his men, and they both kind of, you know, it's a big circle in the ground where, you know, you could uh, uh, be around the perimeter, and one side looked at the other, and the two leaders, Abner and Joab, said, hey, why don't we have this duel? The young men could spar together, and whoever wins, you know, that's it. And so they all get together, this is in chapter 2, they all grab each other and by the beard and they both at the same time. So it's kind of like, you know, one of those things. And that creates this civil war. And the civil war was obviously uh, the family of Saul trying to preserve their legacy and throne against David who was obviously earmarked to be the next king. And so this long civil war now Whenever you have that infighting and, and pain, uh, agony of, of dispute, what you're going to have is incredible um, uh, suspect. There's going to be conspiracy theory. There's going to be um, judgment of one's motives. And David seemed to have understood this, but David was also a man of high integrity. If you read the Psalms, you read how many times he talked about the upright heart. And what you'll see is that David displayed an upright heart. And it wasn't fake. It was absolutely who David was. That should speak to you and I. When we get into these circumstances which are way above our pay grade, the only thing that will hold your feet to the fire, the only thing that will come out as a testimony is an upright heart that's sold out for Jesus Christ that will do the right thing in the right way every time, all the time. I'm shouting, aren't I? I'm 
sorry about that. All right, let's go on. Whew, that's just the opening. Here we go. I need to what? Unplug and plug the iPad in? Okay, nobody panic. My tech guy just texted me. Okay, how's that? Okay, we'll move on. All right, let's read. First thing that happens is this long civil war, as I mentioned in verse 1. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger, but Saul and his house grew weaker. So you could see the change of the climate. And by the way, that was prophesied by, second, by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter, what was it? Chapter 15. So, so we have this, this, this shift. Now, remember Saul, he was always resisting the will of God. David doesn't resist the will of God. Now, the first thing that happens, and I won't read through it mostly because I can't pronounce all the names, but the first thing is, is that David uh, proliferates in marriages. Now, you can say, well, see, that's not according to what we believe. I know, I know. But back then, they, uh, the kings would marry and have um, uh, even concubines, not for the purpose of, like, male dominance, but really it was the purpose of expanding their kingdom. So if you notice in the in verses three through or two through five, three through five, you'll notice I put two of them on the board here. Let's see if I can do this right, Patrick. And I grab my pencil and it's okay, it's on. So this one, look at that, okay? She was from Jezreel. Where's Jezreel? Those who were in Israel with me, it was one of our last stops in the, in the Jezreel Valley. It was on the, north, or the south side of that valley, and Jezreel was where you know, um, Ahab and um, Jezebel and Naboth, you know, Naboth lost his life, remember that? I had you all sitting out straight like that, and I was like teaching away, do you remember that? Nobody remembers that, okay. So obviously it's in the northern area of the kingdom. Now, Geshur, all right, that was also in the north. And so obviously what he's doing through these marriages is he's trying to unify the country. He's trying to bring everybody together. Remember, division is not complementary to the people of God. God is very clear about unity. God wants unity. Jesus prayed for unity. And he links the unity of the body of Christ with declaration of the deity of Christ. That's a big, tall order. And so David, I think, captures the idea, captures the moment. And so he does it through marriages. Now... What happens next is a change of loyalty. And so we're going to move down to chapter uh, three, uh, 3, verse 7. All right? And chapter 3, verse 7 begins a little interaction with Abner and Isbosheth. Now, Isbosheth was the son of Saul. He was inaugurated as king by Abner, ironically enough. Now, what Abner did, Abner was the general, and he was the uncle of this man. Or no, the great, I think he would be the great uncle of this man. And so uh, Isbosheth uh, was king. So Abner, he, wanted a, he was making a play for the throne himself. Now the way you do that in that day is you go ahead and have relations with one of the concubines, right? And so he did that of Isbosheth's order. Well, that's considered a no-no. Right, and it's because you're crossing the boundaries, and it's really a statement of "I'm taking over your regime." So Isbosheth confronts him. So now let's read the text so we don't get too far from the scriptures. And it says this. Uh, let's begin reading in verse seven. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. Ai. So Isbosheth said to Abner. 
Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner became angry. The fool becomes either angry, laughs or is angry, but in the end there's no peace, right? Words, uh, anger at the words of Isbosheth and said, Am I a dead, a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I will show loyalty to the, or today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. You know what he's saying? I could have just given you over to David like a blink of the eye, but did I do that? No, I didn't do that at all. So what are you doing coming after me about my, my, my decisions about relationships? Of course, it was a political move. Anyway, he says this, May God do so to Abner and more so. It's interesting, he speaks in the third person. May God do so to Abner and more so if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. You know what he's saying? I am so upset that you even question me. Then I'm going to go over to David, I'm gonna, and just like we heard Samuel say, I'm going to get everybody loyal to him, okay? Now, little, the little nephew, he's, he's like mortified. He's afraid of Abner. I would too. He sounds like he's kind of got a screw or two loose, right? And so what happens then is after the confrontation, uh, uh, Abner goes down and he makes an appointment. Let me see. He makes an appointment with David, and he says, hey, listen, I'll unite all of Israel, I'll get us together, and you'll have all the kingdom at your disposal. Now, this is kind of an interesting twist, isn't it? We were civil war, and now we're suddenly demonstratively moving towards a unified state. Wow, this is incredible. Looks like a gift horse in the mouth. Now, so what happens next is Abner, uh, or David asks Abner, he says, listen, I'll agree to your idea. And this is in verse 13, we'll read it. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you bring, first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So he says, listen, all right, Abner, this sounds like a good idea, and I'm for it. There's only one thing I want. I want my first wife, right? That was the first wife he had that Saul took away because he was jealous of David and he hated David and wanted David dead. He first promised Michael to him, thinking that, it, he may, he, thinking that if he raised the, bri- the, the, the price of the bride so high by killing Philistines, David would be killed in battle. And, huh, ergo, problem gone, I don't have to worry about David anymore. But David goes and does twice as much as what Saul required. And, and before the whole of, of Israel then, Saul would have been embarrassed if he didn't give Michael to David. He gave Michael to David. Michael defended David and protected him from Saul's assassin hunt. And eventually, Saul took Michael away from David. So that's kind of an embarrassment when you're the king-elect, right? So what does David do? He says, well, I'd like, that, I'd like my first wife back. You know what he means by that? I am not mad at all with the house of Saul. I want his children, the only thing left of him, to come back home. You see what he's saying? It's a very strong move. Now, she already had been given to someone else, and so Ishbosheth had to go through the rigmarole to get his wife back to, to David. But it was truly a statement. And see what David's heart is doing. David's heart has not been bitter. Most kings, when they come to power, they kill everybody so there's no competition. That's what Saul was doing. But David wasn't like that. Do you know why? Because his eye 
was not on his strength to, with his own flesh, secure the throne, of, or the throne that God had promised him. He was going to watch the hand of God do it. That's what he was doing. Now, this is not unlike, you know, this is not unlike people in David's history. Abraham did the same thing. Do you remember Abraham? He had just gone up and rescued Lot from those four kings of, of Mesopotamia, and he's coming back south, and he meets Melchizedek at Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and Melchizedek comes out and he says, blessed be the God, God of the Most High who's delivered your enemy into your hand. And immediately in the next verse, the king of Sodom comes out, and he's in the, he's in the people group going back home and he says to Abraham he says hey why don't you take the goods and I'll keep the people right so Abraham would be instantly rich and Abraham says I have sworn by and he quotes Melchizedek I have raised my hand of the blessed God of the most high that I will take nothing from you know what he's doing he is setting his whole orientation on God keeping his promise David followed the same pattern. By the way, after Abraham did that, God immediately met with him and expanded the covenant de details. Huh? I think David knew that history. And it seems to me that David was practicing that history. And by the way, you'll see that same history emulated and demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. So David, he wants to show that there's not... There's not some vendetta he has. He's not angry uh, or retaliatory towards the house of Saul. He wants the Benjaminites to come. See that? The only way you do that is you have your eye on the promises of God like Hebrews 11 and not on your own flesh. Wow, that's a big lesson, isn't it? All right, let's move on. We got to go. So David asks for the return. Isbosheth makes it happen. David reclaims his life. David does not show, of course, he's not at odds with the house of Saul. He speaks of his desire to unite. I see you won't be able to read that slide, so I'll just tell it to you. What did I? Oh, so there's the word unite. Whoops. Unite there, not at odds, okay? All right, so let's move on. Abner becomes the diplomat, verse 17. So Abner, you know, remember, he was the general, former general. Abner, command, verse 17, had communicated with the elders of Israel. So he goes to all the leadership of the north, saying, in time past, we were seeking David to be king over us. He says, you remember? We used to want this, okay? Now, then let's do it, for the Lord has spoken to David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And so what, what does Abner do? He goes to everybody and he says, hey, don't you remember when we wanted David as king? It's now, let's do it. Now notice that David is not doing any lobbying himself. Did you notice that? David did not send out a, a delegation. David did not try to force his way onto the throne. He was waiting on God. He waited on, on not killing Saul in the wilderness. He's waiting on God now. I need to tell you something. The hardest thing in the Christian life to do is to learn to wait upon the Lord. But it is the absolute most necessary thing to do if you're ever going to be a man or woman after God's own heart. There is no other option for you and I. There's only one path to follow, and that is to wait. Now, what do you do when you wait on somebody? 
well, Steve, I get on my iPhone and I do the real thing. No, you don't. You open up the Word of God and you meditate on stories like this. That's what you do. Because waiting upon the Lord is not an exercise in your frustration. It's an exercise in your growing closer to the Lord by being able to grow in faith and trust that he will work all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's exactly what you're doing. And that takes spiritual energy. It takes spiritual exercise. And I might add, it takes surrender of soul. You cannot have it any other way. Do you want to be a man or woman after God's own heart? That's the price you pay. Are you waiting on God now? Maybe you've been resisting the Lord. Maybe you've been trying your hardest, but you know it just wells up within you, and you want to put your hand and just, just stir it and just, just tweak it. Don't tweak it. Don't do that. Wait upon the Lord. I wish I could tell you I have had a Christian history of that in my life, but I, I don't. I'm a tweaker. I want to just, you know how I know that? <laughs> it's my OCD. One night, my wife was reading a story to our middle daughter, Maggie. Many of you know Maggie. Of course, she's married now and has, has a, 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 a wonderful husband, Nick. And they were at 26 Below not too long ago. Anyway, I, I, they're, they're reading one night, and I go in the room, and Maggie whispers to Janet, Watch, Daddy will straighten one thing, at least one thing before he leaves the room. And wouldn't you know it, I'm walking out, the very last thing I do is I just do, you know, tweak it on the tongue. I say, good night. And the two girls, Janet and her daughter, and our daughter Maggie, are going <coughs> Did you see that? I told you so. I'm a tweaker. Bonafide, degreed, everything. Wait on the Lord, please. Wait on the Lord. Okay. So Abner goes, and he's rallying the troops, and then he's got to deal with the Benjamites, because the Benjamites, are, that, that's the tribe that Saul was from. Now look at what he says. He goes to the Benjamites, and I'm now reading down in verse 19, and Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to the speak to the hearing of David in Hebron. See what he's doing? He's getting everybody together. This is not David's deal. Somebody outside of David's doing that. That's beautiful. Brings the parties together. Now, Joab has other plans. That's the next paragraph. Remember, this section is about David, Joab, and Abner. And Joab, now Joab was actually a nephew of David, his sister's, uh, half-sister's kids. Now these guys were warriors. They're not the kind of guys you want to make mad. You don't want to get on their bad side. They're just a little bit volatile, and they mean it. Right? You ever heard that saying, I don't get, I don't get mad, I get even? That's them. That's them. All right? Don't mess with them. Now, Joab was uh, the, I, I think Joab was the oldest brother, and he was kind of rising in David's army to be the next general, the, the commander-in-chief. And he, was, he has a central part in David's uh, military expeditions. And, and you can actually see he was a pretty good uh, warrior and a general. Uh, remember those, it's in, later on in Samuel when he fought against the Ammonites, you know, the, uh, and defeated them and all that kind of stuff. So he is a pretty, pretty uh, clever man. But a man that's clever can also hate what the boss is doing. Don't mistake your gift of intelligence or cleverness to make you superior 
than the one that God put in charge. You hear that? That is business culture today. All right? So here's what happens. Uh, Joab comes in. And he doesn't like what had happened. Abner went off to go rally the northern troops. And, and, and Joab was not with everybody. Let me see where I'm at. Or verse 22, so sorry. And it says here, if you read it with me. Um, oh, there it is. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. In other words, I'm doing my job, boss. And Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the troops uh, that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and sent him away, and he has gone in peace. And Joab went, what are you thinking? Now I have to translate for you. He says, this is, this is a bad deal. He goes to David and he says, David, don't you get it? Abner's not here to be your friend. Abner is a spy. He's going to be able to know where you go, when you go, and how you go so he can defeat you. Now, on the surface, that sounded, okay, you're looking out for my best interest. That's pretty cool. Thanks, thanks. But that wasn't what was in his heart. Joab was wanting revenge against Abner because Abner killed his brother Asahel in battle. Goes back to the earlier chapters, I think it was chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. After they squared off at the Gibeon thing, you know, where you would like to go with me next year. Okay, after we squared off there, they, Abner has to go on the run. So the guy is like booking it, okay? All right? And Asahel, it says that he's... He's a, a, a very good runner, a fleet of foot or flight of something. Anyway, he's, he's running it, and he's not giving up. So I thought he was like a marathoner, right? He's going after, and Abner says, is that you, Asahel? Asahel goes, yeah, that's me. I'm right on you. And he goes, why don't you stop before somebody gets, like, killed? No, I'm not. And he kept after him. So Abner took his spear, blunt end, and as Asahel got pretty close, he went, hush, and, you know, impaled him. Now, I know if you get, like, sick and all, just throw up outside. Don't worry about that. Okay, so what happened is he kills his, his, the brother, Asahel, right there in the battlefield. And it was, it was a battle, okay? Men were trying to, you know, that's kind of the honorable thing if you die in battle, but not if in cold blood, and so Joab always wanted revenge. It's not the first time. This would be one of many. And so Joab says to David, he's a spy, but that's not really the motive. You see, Joab really wanted to bring Abner back. And so he sends a messenger outside of the authority of David. And he sends a messenger to, to Abner. And he says, Abner, you need to come back. We have a few things we, got we didn't finish. Abner comes back. Oh, yeah, what's going on? He meets him in the gate. And you guessed it, beard, sword, uh, kills him right there. That's what happened. Oh, my goodness. This looks terrible. You got David, his authorized man of military uh, genius, takes things into his own hands and kills another guy who probably felt like competition. And now David looks like he did it. You see, a Christian is always going to have something that could really put a black eye on God. You got to deal, deal with this wisely. And this is what he does. 
He, he can't believe that Joab did it. He distanced himself. And in the next several lines, what happens is, is he, he curses Joab's house. And he says, not only, not only did I not authorize this, look at it in verse 28, I, I pronounce a discharge or leprosy on the house of Joab forevermore. You know what that means? That there will always be in the house of Joab somebody who cannot participate in the religious activities of the Torah. That's what a discharge does to you. That's what leprosy does to you. You will always have somebody who is outside. Now that sounds pretty stiff, but there's a lesson there. And the lesson is this. When you act upon your own strength for revenge or jealousy, you automatically remove yourself from being qualified to serve God. Are you that way today? You see, revenge and jealousy, they're dangerous. They're killers. They're the kinds of things that create disunity. David knows that. And I tell you that because in the church of God today, it's rampant. It is our cancer. It is the one thing that tears us apart and has been tearing us apart for generations. It's not just our generation. It's every generation. And what God needs is people who have a heart after God's own heart who will recognize the destructive nature of that disposition and how it tears apart and never grows the people of God. Let's be that generation. Do you see it? David sees it. And he's on damage control, isn't he? So he declares that he's guiltless of this whole conspiracy in verse 27. And, and, and he says in verse 30, look at what it says in verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, uh, his brother killed Abner because he killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. I'm sorry, I think I got the brother's names mixed up there. Asahel. Now, you see what's happening? David knows what's going on. I might add, did you know God actually knows the motives of your heart? They're not hidden from anybody. God knows exactly why you did what you did and how you did it. We need to be a people that lets, let accepts God's intimate knowledge of the hidden recesses of the soul and act accordingly. That's a man after God's own heart. All right, moving on. I, don't, I notice you don't have a clock. Oh, there it is. It's kind of it's blurry. All right, so what does David do? He pronounces that everyone should mourn, and, 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 and even Joab specifically and his men, that they need to mourn. And then David buries, the, uh, buries uh, uh, Abner in the capital, which was at that time was Hebron. That is honor right there. David is showing everybody, I was not a part of this. This is not how I feel. He was making a public, a public pronouncement, and you can see in verse 35 through 37 that he was not part of a vengeful streak. When all the people came to persuade David to eat, he was fasting. He says, I will not eat till the, uh, till the sun goes down. Look, at, uh, God do so to more to me, and also if I taste bread or anything until the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. Why did that happen? Because David did not have that vengeful get even streak. He wasn't going to get the throne at all costs. 
Just read the, the north, after Rehoboam and the northern kings with Jeroboam. Read how every dynasty got it by force, by hook, by crook. Not David. Neither did Christ. He didn't barge his way into humanity, push everyone around, and assume the throne. He went to the cross to die and be resurrected. And God the Father did all that to him and for him. He's just, David is giving us a picture of Christ. All right, let's move on. So we see that, the, that David eventually says, the Lord will repay you. All right, now, Isbosheth, we've got to move into chapter 4 real quick. So Isbosheth is left. He's the king of the, of, the other, of the northern kingdom, so to speak, and specifically Benjamin and anyone else who sided with him. Now, Isbosheth, he was kind of a weak guy. He wasn't as strong. Remember, he was afraid of Abner, and Abner should have been afraid of the king. But not, now, Isbosheth was a little bit nervous. And so he had two captains. That means they were under the authority of Abner at some point, And they seemed to have been sided with Abner as inside men. And they were um, uh, Bana and Rahab. Rahab, right? And so what happened was they decided to assassinate Isbosheth. And they pretended to go get wheat from the king's quarters, uh, from the king's uh, uh, home. And they got in, of course, under that, uh, under that pretense. Then, in other words, they were let in. And then what they did is they snuck in to the bedchamber of Isbosheth. He was taking a rest at noonday, most likely depressed. And they stabbed him and killed him. Then what they did, don't freak out, beheaded him and took the head and went to Hebron to where David was. You see all that? It's, it's violent, isn't it? Very violent. And so their course of action was to, was to bring this to David and show that they were heroes. We got rid of your final enemy. Ha ha! What do you think of them apples, David? I'll tell you what David thinks of that. This is what he says. Look, now you're in chapter 4. Go ahead and scan down to verse 9. It says this, But David answered Rahab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berhothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, he who has redeemed my life from all adversity, see how he credits God? In other words, God is at the center of this whole operation as far as I'm concerned. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. That's in chapter 1. Right? And the poor Malachite guy, I mean, he said he came in and he says, yeah, and I saw Saul and I killed him and the whole thing. And he says, you killed Saul? You're a dead man. David, from the beginning, was not going to rejoice in assuming the throne by eliminating his enemy. David was going to let the hand of God do this every turn. Why did, where did he learn that? He learned it in 1 Samuel 24, 25, 26, when he had Saul in the cave at En Gedi. And Saul was right there, and he could have took his life, and all his men are going, do it, do it, do it. And David just took a part of his robe and, and came to his senses and said, what am I doing? In chapter 20, 25, he meets Abigail, and he was going to annihilate the whole clan of Nabal because he insulted the king-elect in a terrible way. And Abigail comes, falls on her face before David and said, "Let me on me, my lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And she gives this great speech about how you don't need to have this on your conscience when you're king because we know God is going to make you king. And David says, wow, praise God that you 
that you protected me from my foolish revenge. So that when you get to chapter 26 and then the wilderness of Ziph and there's Abner and Saul laying down on the night sleeping in the field. Uh, uh, one of uh, Joab's brothers said, hey boss, let me go down there. I'll strike him dead and I won't have to do it twice. And David says, stand down. We're not here to take that man's life. See that? David learned those lessons. And now he's applying them. He applied it in his dealings with Abner. He applied it in his dealings with, with, um, uh, with Isposheth and these two criminals that assassinated their boss. Oh, do you see the heart? It's such a meek heart. It's such a heart that's not going to scrap and punch and move and, and injure to get what I want. That's a man or woman after God's own heart. That is our Savior through and through. That's exactly what Christ is. Now, look at this. After they tell him uh, what they did, he, he executes these two soldiers, and he takes the remaining part of Isbosheth's body, which was his head, and he buries it in the capital, Hebron, also. Those are all statements of how David feels about the, the regime. So what do we learn? Well, we learn a couple things, all right? Number one, taking your own revenge is not the way of God. Making your own way. I mentioned the scriptures a minute ago in 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26. You can see them there. David is living out what he learned. Now, we also learn something about God. He's the only one who is right enough, untainted enough, holy enough, righteous enough to execute vengeance without a secondary motive. And it says here in these passages right here, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's the only one that has that pure heart that can do that. That's why you wait on the Lord. If you try to uh, take a get even for your own, uh, on your own, you're tainted goods. Your flesh, still, although dead, has manipulation power, manipulation potential. And that skews your thinking and skews your decision making. You know how I know that? I talk to my wife. And I explain to her what I'm thinking and why. And she looks at me with those big brown eyes and says, you and I both know that's not the real reason. She never says a word. Oh, man. I hate it when she's right. Which is... Pretty much all the time. This is awful. And I know it. I know it. God cares about your motives. Christ. Christ did not take matters into his own hands. You know, he was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And, he, uh, he, uh, and somebody whipped out their sword. It was Peter. And he went, ah! like a really, really bad samurai. Catches the ear. Most samurais... They get the neck, not Peter. Gets the ear. <laughs> I can just see them talking later. I can't even cut off somebody's head right, you know. <laughs> John said, yeah, I just got the ear, buddy. I'm sorry about that. And here's, here's the Lord. He says, no, put that sword away. Don't you know I could call legions of angels? And then he picks up the bloodied ear and puts it back on. And he didn't put it on upside down. That would make him dyslexic. Are you following? The, never mind. Never mind. 
All right, that's the Lord. He could have, but he didn't. And what do we learn for ourselves? We learn the meekness of Christ. You see, Christ, he could have done it, but he had the power to do it. He could have called the angels. He could have done it all. But you know what he did? He took himself and actually put himself under the authority of his Father in heaven and therefore did not retaliate on his own, as it says in the Second Peter passage right here. He was able to submit himself to him who judges righteously, waiting upon the Lord makes it right. Are you in that situation? Because that's not only David, that's your Christ. I can't tell you, I just love him so. All right, last chapter, it's shorter, don't worry, we'll finish. So David moves on and he now reigns with regality, with nobility, he has a real sense of, of, of beauty about him. The first thing is he needed to do was to secure Jerusalem, a new capital. Why move from Hebron, which is in the south, up to Jerusalem, which is in the north? Because Jerusalem was in the, officially in the territory of Benjamin. So what is he doing? He's wanting to unify the country. Now, especially the Benjamites who had King, as one of, as king Saul as one of their own. Not only that, it was closer to the north, and so it was more of a central gathering point. David was all about bringing the country together. Saul was about bringing the country apart. Now, gains the capital. Now, how does he do that? He says, anybody who can go up the water shaft can be my, be my official general. Guess who volunteers? Joab. I'm sure David goes, oh, great. Right? I got to live with this guy now. So he goes up and they conquer it. It's also in Second Chronicles. You can see it there. And so they, they get Jerusalem. And when that happens, the king of Tyre, that's Haram, he then goes to David, makes this kind of covenant, helps him build his house. David has now international respect. David gains national solidarity. And he recognizes that it was God who had given him, given him the victory. Now I'm going faster, right? Let's do it. So David endears himself to his countrymen, that's in verses 1 through 5, and he remembers David's, they remember David's previous shepherding, they made a covenant with David, and David becomes king at age 30. You know, I, I know a lot of 30-year-olds, I was a 30-year-old once, I think being king is the last thing you wanted to make me, all right. But David had learned lessons. Um, uh, uh, I don't need to go over that, I just did, but what you find is that David's fingerprints are all over establishing the new regime. David gives credit to the Lord. Look in chapter 5, verse 10. It says this. It says, And David, uh, David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. David knew how he got to where he was. Like I said, the king of Tyre came, he honored him. David moves his family to Jerusalem. He expands. He has sons born in Jerusalem now. Again, establishing this is my resident, my permanent residence. But as soon as that happens, the pesky Philistines, they're kind of like the termites, you know. And they come along and they challenge this new king. You see, that's what happens when God puts you in the right place at the right time because you followed his way. You have the enemy that comes to come and knock you out. Every time. Whenever we have recognized a new elder at our assembly, the enemy targets that guy. I'm serious. 
It targets them. So the Philistine comes and they mount a new assault on this young king. You know what David does? Look, look what it says in verse 19. David inquires of the Lord. He doesn't go, oh man, what now? He inquires of the Lord. The Lord, in and, and verse 19, so David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up and I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. You see what he's doing? He is doing what Saul never did. Look at that one that I referenced there in 1 Samuel 14, 16 16 through 20. You know what? That was when uh, Jonathan went over and attacked at Michmash, and uh, the entire Philistine army starts to get a little nervous, and they begin to retreat. And Saul's watchman says, hey, boss, they're kind of moving away. And Saul goes, well, bring the ark. And they bring the ark, and they're going to inquire of God. But he hears so much commotion on the other hill of the battle and people moving and retreating. He says, oh, just stop. And he runs off to battle. You know, that's just like we do. We get so distracted by the details of a day that we stop seeking the Lord, and we just run to the battle. David doesn't do it. David doesn't run to the battle until he sought the Lord. That's a man or a woman after God's own heart. And he defeats them that day. He breaks through and even calls the the place where I broke through. They regroup. The Philistines regroup. They attack. And by the way, they went to the Valley of Rephaim. The Valley of Rephaim, if you go into that valley, you drive up it, which I don't know if anybody realized on my tour, that's what we did. You, You go right to the heart of Jerusalem. I mean, you are, boom, you're right in the Hinnon Valley, right? You're right there. They, they, were, they were going for blood. And David, in a moment, just came off a fresh victory. He could have said, well, I'll go out and get him again. You know what he does? He inquires of the Lord again. Look at verse 23. I just love this. He says, oops, where am I? Oh, 23. Uh, Therefore David inquired of the Lord and said, shall, uh, uh, again, verse 20, 22, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, you shall not go up, that is, not the frontal assault, circle behind them, and listen to this, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And so in other words, you circle behind, you'll actually confront them, you know, you'll be, you'll be kind of a re- in the rears, and then you'll be by these, this mulberry grove, and then when you hear, listen to this, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, and look at this phrase, for the Lord then uh, the, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. You know what that sounds like? Angelic hosts. I mean, who's up there making the noise in the trees? The army? No. The wind? No. The angelic hosts. And that's why it says, and the Lord will go out in front of you. You see what happened? David sought the Lord the first time, and the Lord was with him, and he fought with his hands. This time. Tired from the previous battle, the Lord takes the battle on his own shoulders and takes it to the fight. You see, this is what happens when you are a man or a woman after God's own heart. You have not only just the Lord giving you the direction, you seeking the Lord. The Lord then does things in a supernatural way that are inexplicable to the enemy. And that's what we want to be. That's exactly what we want to be. This is how the kingdom of God is expanded We have a pure heart, and we have God's way. And we don't do it independently of God. We don't do it on our own strength. We do it in the strength of the Spirit of God who lives within us. This is the plan for the church today, is it not? That's exactly what we're about. But somehow, someway, we're missing it. 
and I don't want to be another generation that misses it. Do you? No. I want to see the Lord do it all. He chases that enemy all the way back to the Philistine area called Gezer. We actually passed Gezer when we were, it's in the Shephelah. We passed it when we were in Israel. So many lessons, but let's just, let's just learn them quickly. God, what, we, what do we learn about God? He blesses those who honor him. I will honor those who honor me. That's actually a message to Eli in 1 Samuel. He will expand your own endeavor. He will expand those endeavors. It says that in the psalm. You, you wait upon the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He always provides, he always provides you protection, or direction. Seek me and you will find me. All right, what do we learn about Christ? Oh, Christ conquered our foes at the cross. Philistines came. Goliath came, enemies came, and Christ, the only champion of all times, comes to the battlefield and defeats our enemies with a death blow to the head. Christ sought his father in crisis like David. Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I will be done, so let it be. And Christ was exalted to the throne, his father's throne, Philippians 2. Given him a name which is above every name. You see that just like David. This is precious. We learn about God. We learn about Christ. And we learn about ourselves. That we have conquered with Christ at the cross. As he died, so I died. As he rose, so I arose. We are that intertwined. If I may borrow from my son William. We're that interwoven. So that we might seek our father in crisis as Christ sought his father. And we reign with him. We are with him on the throne. You see it? So when you're done today, I need you to ask yourself, what did we learn about God the Father? What did we learn about Christ? And what do we need to learn for ourselves? I think that's a good way to look at the teaching of this historical narrative. And I'm amazed. You don't need to fight your way through. All right, let me give you this last one. Philippians chapter 2. Do you remember where it says, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God? Do you remember that phrase? That phrase, did not be equal, or did not robbery with equal, did not think it robbery to be equal with God. That means this. Jesus is on the throne, and if somebody assaults the throne, he, he is in his right to defend. And if Jesus is not on the throne, and somebody is usurping the throne, he is in his right to conquer. Either way, it was Okay. But Jesus didn't do that, like David. Now the Philippians knew the history of Philippi because the decisive battle of one of the major civil wars in the Roman Empire happened. You know, Brutus and Mark Antony? Happened at Philippi. So they were used to seeing men scrap and scrounge for the throne. So when you write a letter that tells how Christ didn't do that, you are talking about a greater emperor than a Roman emperor. That's our king. Let's pray. Father, we've come today not because we're smart and not because we are wise. We've come to feed on the word of God because that's all there is. We are so needful to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus. We're so needful to hear the voice of our King in heaven. And Father, I just pray, let the Spirit of God fall upon us in a manner that the Word of God would be, would be meditated on, digested, and lived, I pray, Father. Help us, I pray, O oh God, to be men and women who are 
like David, after your own heart. This I pray for Bethany Bible Chapel and all the assemblies in North America. In Jesus' name, amen.